We're in Ephesians chapter 2, if you haven't turned there already. And the section from 11 to 22 um, is, is in, the, in the, the microcosm talking about Jews and Gentiles. But just in the bigger picture, we're just talking about what sin does and uh, how sin um, manifests itself in the world. And you can, um, it's basically three movements to it. We're only going to get really to the first one. Um, of this, and maybe halfway through the first one. Um, but from Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, you have the idea that sin separates, that sin creates hostility, and that sin creates disunity. And, and within all of those ideas, you kind of have that, that idea, of course, right, of, of separation, of, of two parts that are distinct from one another. And so um, it's all one theme, truly and really, uh, but there are different faces to that. And then the first one we're going to talk about is this idea of sin being that which separates. Now, uh, I grew up in um, a Korean household. My parents both from Korea. They immigrated here in the late 70s. I was born in 1980. Uh, And so I'm very much a product of like American culture in terms of exposure and living here, but very much in terms of my household I grew up very Korean, speaking Korean, eating Korean food. Now, uh, the reason I say that is I I just have these distinct memories of my next-door neighbor. uh, After I was six or seven, we moved to Orange from Santa Ana, and uh, they had this great big bay window, my my neighbors did. And every Christmas, uh, my friend's mom would fill that with that little uh, holiday village stuff, if you know what I'm talking about. And this great big bay window, so there's a whole little town of the little... Christmas figurines, and um, she, she used to make these uh, apple cinnamon cookies that I, I don't even know how to describe to you. I've tried to describe to Catherine. She's tried to make them before we've come close, but, you know, in my mind, it's just like this magical, you know, and captures the holiday kind of spirit and mood. Now, the thing is, I was always on the outside looking into that, you know, literally looking in. Um, but, you know, even when I came into the house, um, it wasn't as if I was part of the family. So whatever things they did for Christmas, uh, I don't think I was ever there for, like, Thanksgiving or Christmas meal. That's something they did together as their own family, and that's okay. Um, and so I, I never really got to participate in their Christmas activities. So um, there was a tree, of course, and all the presents underneath, and afterwards, you know, go to my next door neighbor's house and play with the toys and things like that and be somewhat blessed by it. I got to sample the cookies, of course. Um, but I wasn't really in it. You know, I wasn't really a part of the family. I wasn't really involved in the setup. I wasn't really taken in. And it was no fault of theirs. It's not like they, they needed to do that. That's just the way um, they did things. But I, when I came to my house, I was the one that had to, you know, like we got to have a tree up, you know, we got to have lights up. So I was always the one demanding that. Uh, I was always the one trying to push, you know, some of that Christmas spirit. Uh, I would wrap my own gifts. Um, and uh, <laughs> I became very good at wrapping presents. And then and you've heard this story too, but I, I would also unwrap them, play with it before Christmas, and then put it back and wrap it up again. Do like every night leading up to Christmas. So uh, I obviously didn't know how Christmas... <laughs> Well, I knew how Christmas was supposed to work, but um, I cheated around it because there's no one to hold me accountable because my parents were not, were not there. Now, that idea of being on the outside and looking in, 
of, of realizing some of what's going on, but not really being a part of it. That is the idea that Paul is going to elaborate on when it comes to this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Now, this might be a subject that you don't really ever think about. And we're going we're gonna to talk about circumcision. That could very well take up a lot of our time today. It's probably not the sermon uh, that you're necessarily expecting to hear about um, this Sunday morning. But it's important because there's very much an idea in the Old Testament that what Israel did as a nation was exactly to be something that allured the world to come and see and look at what the Lord is doing and to entice them to want to be a part of what is happening. And there was supposed to be, in a sense, an open door for that, uh, for them to be embraced and welcomed into that community. But the fact of the matter is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, Israel rarely acted like that community. The Jewish people rarely ever fulfilled that commission. And, and so the Gentiles really never understood fully the appeal of, of Israel's God and the promises they enjoyed. And so uh, we want to, as we talk about Gentiles and, and Jews and the Israelites and circumcision, I know it might sound a little bit foreign to you in terms of concepts that you regularly deal with on a daily basis, but it's important because there is supposed to be um, that distinction and that separation, and it's, it is fundamentally supposed to uh, tell us something about God, that the kind of separation there was between Jews and Gentiles was in a way to symbolize the, the separation that there is between us and God because of sin. And so just as the Israelites were to be this uh, pillar of holiness and to be a light, um, and to welcome people, to worship the one true God. So God also, of course, wants that for himself. He is the father of lights. He gives every good gift and blessing. We should come to him as well. But the very same thing that separated uh, the Jews from the Gentiles and really all people from God is sin. Sin separates. And so it's interesting that we come here after talking about you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We've talked about the good works that God has prepared beforehand. Paul now goes on to say, therefore, when you've, when you've thought about salvation and how great it is, Paul says, therefore, remember something. Think about something. Now, he's going to be specifically addressing the Gentile believers. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. But he is particularly addressing one group of people, in the Ephesian church to remember, whenever you think of your salvation, to remember this, that at one time you were separated from God. He wants the Gentile Christians especially to continually, this is present tense command, continually remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were that, at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. He gives five different ways that they are to remember their distance, their separation from God. Now, it's an interesting command because on the face of it, it's not like a particularly warm, wholesome remembering because you're, you're basically saying, remember that time when you didn't get invited over for dinner? Remember that time when you were on the outside and shunned? Remember when 
it sounds on the surface of at least somewhat depressing. And yet Paul is saying, continually remember this in the light of your salvation because, of course, he's setting up the contrast. There was such a great distance. Remember that because your salvation, it crossed this great distance in order to bring you together with God. But before we get into all that, let's talk about some um, definitions and some terms here. What is a Gentile? Well, it's a word that basically means the people of the world that are not Jewish, okay? That, of course, is the majority of the human population that has ever existed. Uh, likely, our church here is mainly made up of people that are not Jewish. We are mainly Gentiles. I am a Gentile. So you might ask them, well, what makes the Jewish people so special that they get uh, singled out and everyone else is kind of labeled in contrast to the Jewish people? Well, the first thing or the main thing that Paul brings up here is circumcision. The, the Jews are those who are circumcised and the Gentiles are those who are uncircumcised. Well, without getting into too many of the details because the kids are in here too, um, circumcision is a ritual for male children involving the uh, surgical removal of flesh. Okay, we're going we're gonna to leave that there. Um, parents, you can get more detail to that if you want, if your kids are asking. But what is so important about circumcision, such that it is kind of the distinctive between Gentiles and Jews here that Paul brings up? Well, you have to go back 4,000 years. 4,000 years, around 2000 BC then, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. God promised that he would bless Abraham and his descendants and give them a land to dwell in, make them a great nation, and one day bless the whole world through a special child or seed born from that nation. That's in Genesis 15. As a symbol of that promise being passed down from generation to generation, from Abraham's kids to their kids to their kids to their kids, God commanded as a symbol of that promise that Abraham and his male descendants, that they perform this surgical removal of flesh from the male children uh, in Genesis 17, 9 through 14, if you want to look up the specific passage, Genesis 17, 9 through 14. So circumcision then was a symbol of this covenant that God made to Abraham and it was one of the main ways that the descendants of Abraham were distinguished from the other people groups, right? It was, it was notable. Everyone knew that those were the circumcision people. They were the Jews. Now, it might seem peculiar to us now, this day and age, that this particular surgical procedure could seem to be so significant. But when you read the Bible... It's very significant. How significant is it? Well, you remember Moses from the book of Exodus, right? Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, God commissions Moses to be his champion, to uh, rescue the people from Egyptian slavery, to be uh, the one who would lead them to the promised land and fulfill that Abrahamic covenant. Now, this is happening more than 500 years, or about 500 years after the time of Abraham. So you're talking about Moses after hundreds of years is being raised up to be this um, fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant, at least in some part. And Exodus 4, God tries to kill him. Why? 
the next chapter, because Moses had not circumcised his own children. What did it mean that Moses did not circumcise his own children? Well, it kind of insinuated that either Moses didn't care about this covenant or that he did not think God was going to come through on it. That's what it meant. That's how serious it was. If you didn't circumcise your kid, you're basically saying God is a liar or I don't care what God promised. And so he's about to kill him. Zipporah, his wife, actually figures out what's happening before Moses does. Um, So his children, and Moses' children at this time, probably adults, um, they get circumcised and God uh, passes over the judgment that was on Moses. But that's how serious it was. It's deadly serious. So circumcision throughout the Old Testament, it's more than just being a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To be part of God's special people, the Jewish people, the Israelite nation, it, it meant there was more to it than just you were of a certain lineage, heritage, genealogy. Um, it included that, but almost, in a sense, more importantly, was the circumcision as a representation of the promise of God. And any Jew who was circumcised was supposed to also believe in God's words and promises all throughout the Bible. Now, there are more covenants than just the Abrahamic. We'll get to that, Lord willing, later. But circumcision was limited to those who were under God's promise, okay? Now, an uncircumcised person then is, you know, by uh, by logic, is someone who isn't descended from Abraham and likewise outside of the covenant promises of God, does not have those as his hope. Now, there were some exceptions to this and that people could convert and be circumcised. But generally, when the Bible talks about circumcised versus or uncircumcised, we're talking about this distinction between the people of God who have the promise of God and those who do not around the outside looking in, so to speak. Now, the Jews, historically even, um, they viewed those who were outside of their circle, those who were uncircumcised, judgmentally. I mean, condescending attitude. They're the chosen people, after all. They're the ones that God had selected to be the inheritors of this great promise, and they're going to be the ones through whom this special seed, this child would come and bless the whole world. And so what happened, though, is rather than boasting in the Lord, being thankful to God, they started to pride themselves in their circumcision alone, as if that was something to boast in, the removal of skin. And it was, again, one of the distinctives of the Jewish people for thousands of years. But when you read this, At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul is making a little bit of a commentary. He's pointing out that, yes, you know, the Jewish people, there were some, and even at this day, some who looked down on uncircumcised Gentiles. But the Jews weren't really any better off. While the Gentiles were uncircumcised in the flesh, that is, their literal bodies, the Jews were, it says here, circumcised in the flesh by the works of someone's hands. Now, that word, that phrase, made by hand, is used in the Bible to refer to the works that you do, 
versus the works that God does. In other words, <clears throat> in the context of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves and not of your own works that no one may boast, that's exactly what the Jewish people were doing. They were boasting in something that was made by human hands, so to speak. It was a work of someone's hands. And so if you believed or if any Jew believed that their circumcision was what made them right in the eyes of God, that was the same as believing that your works can save you. That is wrong. So while the Gentiles were uncircumcised in the flesh, Jews, while circumcised in the flesh, if they were trusting that that alone made them right in the eyes of God, they were still in the same place as any pagan Gentile. And we see this as a theme. Just for sake of time, we won't go there, but go to Romans chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, or jot that down, Romans 2, 25 through 29. And Paul makes clear, and there's other places in the New Testament that makes it clear that you can be circumcised in the flesh, but uncircumcised in your heart towards God. And that a Gentile could be uncircumcised in the flesh, but circumcised in his heart towards God. In other words, that God doesn't necessarily care about circumcision. He cares about a person's faith and trust and belief in him more than anything else. So Paul is aware of that, and he's kind of pointing that out or insinuating that as well, that, um, that the, any Jewish people that would hold a Gentile in contempt for their uncircumcision is not understanding. They're not getting it. This separation that we're talking about between Gentile and Jew is just as real as any Jewish person that was trusting in their works, in their relationship to God. So they were just as far, everyone was just as far from God if they didn't have that uh, belief in their heart. And so really, frankly, you could read the whole Old Testament and you'll see that <clears throat> the Israelites spend most of their history acting like Gentiles. There's only very brief periods of history where things are kind of okay, they're kind of acting like the people God wants them to be, but even then, they weren't really that okay, and those moments are very brief in comparison to the history of the Jewish people. And um, actually, been reading through Ezekiel, probably bring this up tonight, but in Ezekiel um, 16, God calls the Israelites, the children of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites. And if you remember our studies in Joshua, I mean, those are the pagan nations that God had Joshua destroy during the conquest. So what is that saying? It's saying, Israel, you, you're acting like Gentiles. And that's frankly true. Now, I'm getting a little bit outside the point, but it's in definitely in Paul's mind as he writes this. But Paul is trying to emphasize, again, that there was a great chasm, a great distance between the Gentiles and God and the Gentiles and the Jews. Remember, Jews are kind of uh, standing in, the, in their ideal state. They were to represent God on earth. And so to be distant from the Jewish people is to be distant from God in their perfect, idealized state. So there are five ways that Gentiles were far from God that we need to remember. Um, we'll get through as many as we can, all right? But five ways Gentiles are far from God that we still need to remember. The first one is this. Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ. This is mentioned first because in a way it tells you what the real core and heart of the issue is, the real fundamental separation that was most 
uh, desperate is that they were apart from Christ. Now, this is in another way of looking at it, saying what is the whole point of the Jewish history? It was to bring people to the knowledge of the Messiah. In a way, you're summing up the, the reason for the existence of the Jewish people is for the sake and the purpose of bringing people to Christ themselves, but also the world. Now, this word Christ, remember, it's not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It means anointed one, a special one, the one who will save us. In Hebrew, the word is Mashiach. And so in Greek, the same idea is Mashiach in Hebrew. It's Christ or Christos in Greek. And from English, we have both words, Christ and Messiah. They all refer to the same thing, the idea of a special, unique, chosen one of God who would be the Savior, the ruler, the one who makes everything right. True Judaism is not fulfilled without the Mashiach. What does that mean? Well, when you read, again, your Old Testament, you'll see very quickly um, that the Jewish people, despite being God's chosen people, the recipient of God's promises, a holy instrument to bring about the knowledge of God, they kept screwing up. It's very relatable. <laughs> okay, We can't sit there and judge them and say, I can't believe they keep screwing up over and over again. Well, have you looked in the mirror lately? I mean, we're just seeing what human nature is like. You could say that they constantly, their sinning was really them constantly trying to separate themselves or distance themselves from God. I mean, they could be physically located in Jerusalem, which is the holy city. They could physically be at their temple, which is the place that God met with man. But they could still be far in their hearts from God in their sin. And you could say that throughout, even from Abraham to Moses, to the wandering in the wilderness, to the time of the judges, to the kings of Israel, to the fall of the kingdom, that they were always running away from God. It's a separation, yes, that God makes as being holy, and we are sinful, but sin by its nature also tries to separate us from him. We run the other way from where God is, sometimes by coming to church so that you can hide and open. And so people think you're okay and think that you're not a sinner, and that's what you do, but God knows there's always a separation between sinners and God. The Mashiach them. The Messiah was going to be the one who ends this cycle of people running from God, seeking their own sinful life. The Messiah would be the only one who could lead the people back to God and keep them there because he would change their hearts. He would change their lives. Now, I know we're supposed to be talking about Gentiles, of course, but the Jews they had that promise that Messiah would come and make everything right, including fixing their sinful hearts. So they did have that. They didn't, they missed that. They missed that even when Messiah came, right? So on the one hand, yes, they kept screwing that up. They didn't realize it. But it is true that they did have that promise. That promise came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Like it is true and David and and so on. Like, it is true that the Jews had that unique 
promise from God, though, that the Gentiles did not have. Again, the the Jewish people screwed it up many times, but they had at least this promise. But Gentiles, they were apart from that promise. Or you could say they weren't owed that Messiah in the same way as the Jews were. The Jews were promised it, though they didn't deserve it. Okay, But Gentiles, they didn't have even that promise. But they were allowed to come and have the Mashiach of the Jews be their Mashiach also. That is what the grace is, is that those who are far off, who weren't even part of that promise to have this Messiah, they were. You know, in God's eternal plan, they were. From our point of view, sure didn't look like it. God always had that plan. Now, most of us here, we're Gentiles here, so we should be able to apply this. What does it mean to remember? Because we're supposed to do this. What does it mean to remember that we were apart from Christ? That we were at some point separated from Christ? Well, we're clearly meant to think of our own testimony and our own salvation. Now, I know this might not hit as much as if you became a Christian at six years old or or seven, but even in thinking about remembering that you're apart from Christ, there's a present-day way that no matter how old you are in the faith that you kind of forget that you're separated from Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, we live at a time when everyone is looking for a hero, for a savior, for a messiah, it's in our pop culture. You know, we got superhero movies coming out of our ears. You can't open the door, turn on the radio, uh, look at your phone without the latest superhero thing uh, being shoved in your face. And I, I don't get me wrong, I don't mind superhero stuff, okay? But it's everywhere. It's in our pop culture. It's in, you could say, our DNA. Because even before that, we've always had stories. Every culture on the planet has stories and literature and myths passed on of superhero figures that do these amazing things. Uh, Someone who can defeat the bad guys, rescue the helpless, protect the weak, bring justice to the innocent. Most cultures have figures like that in their stories, both real and fictional. I mean, we're also in a weird kind of age where we're looking for politicians to solve our problems, and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, that we think that people, politicians, can maybe get enough power or influence and they can change the direction that society is going. That's part of who we are. That's, that's part of what people do. Is the Israelites, they wanted a king. They just didn't want God to be king. That's, most cultures have that idea that someone should represent us and someone should protect us and someone should lead us and so on. Now, if you're a Gentile, apart from Christ, that's really all you have to put your hope in, right? Either pretending that such heroes, you know, could exist or hoping that there are truly pure-hearted politicians out there with nothing but the best interests of humanity at heart. That is your best hope. That's the only thing that can keep you going is fictionalized movies and, and, and shows and things that kind of spark your hope in humanity or looking to others, politicians, others who have more money and power and influence to try and change something. If you're a part, if you're Gentile, apart from Christ, that's really all you have. But if you're a Gentile that has put their faith in Christ, 
remembering that you were once apart from Christ is really like saying in our, you know, more present day maybe application is remember when all you could hope in was fictional heroes and faulty humans who are just going to let you down or die. Even your parents, even your grandparents. I mean, as wonderful as they might have been, they can't be there forever. The present day application, even if that wasn't your hope before you became a Christian, is don't now, as a Christian, start putting your hope in false messiahs and false Christs. Let us be thankful that we have Jesus, the fulfillment who was prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, that he is the one that we can put all of our hope into because he is perfect, because he has all the power he needs, because he did that which no one can do. He took our sins on the cross, died paying the price for them, and rose again victoriously conquering sin and death. No superhero has done any of those things, real or imagined. No politician has ever done that, real or imagined. Only Jesus has. So don't forget that. Don't act like suddenly that's not true. I think that's really, for us, the remembering has to do with, is for us now to not forget that Jesus is our hope, is the only one who can fix this mess that's going on. And he's, all, he's always been the only hope. So don't start acting like a pagan Gentile who is apart from Christ, grasping for, for others, other messiahs, other Christ. Further expanding on the idea of being far from God, we have this second way that Gentiles were far from God, and we need to remember that. It says, having been alienated from the commonwealth, of Israel. The word alienated here is the kind of way that we use the term alien to mean someone that's not a, a citizen of a nation. We're not talking, again, for the kids here, we're not talking about outer space kind of alien. We're just talking about someone who is not native to the country that they're in. <clears throat> so, uh, again, remember that the Israelites were to represent the true people of God. But you could be an Israelite by genealogy and by circumcision and all those things, but that didn't necessarily mean you're really a part of God's family. But having said that, Paul is saying that ideally, the intention of God was that the Israelites would be a community based on glorifying God and being completely dependent upon him. They were to be the city on the hill that demonstrated true belief and faith and trust in the Lord, a true understanding of who God is and our relationship to him, they were supposed to be that premier example. Here at our church, we believe they will be in the future, that those promises will happen uh, in the millennial kingdom. We'll get into all that. But that was the, the goal that was being set up, the paradigm that was being set up in the Old Testament that they never achieved. But that, that idea, that concept, Gentiles were... Not necessarily in that. They were to see that and maybe be drawn to it, but they were not necessarily in that. Again, on the outside, looking into it, they were aliens to that community, separated from that community, right? And we're supposed to remember that. Paul's telling the Gentiles, remember when you were on the outside, 
looking in. And again, that could sound very you know, depressing if you were uh, the type in, in, in school to kind of be the wallflower or to just not be as you know, uh, extroverted. Maybe this is bringing up you know, bad memories. But I think when Paul is telling us to remember this, again, he's setting up a contrast. That was the case. And we're not just talking about personality types, your you know, extroverts versus introverts and things like that. He's saying that there was a time that no matter how wonderful your community is or was, your ethnic background, the country that you lived in, your neighborhood or your city, those identities couldn't bring you to God or be a substitute for community with God. No matter how great it was or how awful it was, Paul definitely wants to remind us and wants us to continually remind ourselves that there's no perfect society, no perfect culture, there's no flaws, no injustice. Um, The world is a place that is, you know, at times very beautiful and wonderful and all the human cultures of the world that, that flourish here, there are beautiful things that reflect God, but not one of them, not one of them can bring you to him. I mean, that's what Israel was supposed to be, but they they couldn't even do it on their own power either. There's a sense in which we should all feel a little bit like when it comes to God and his kingdom, no matter how great your culture is that you grew up from, that you would say, but I know this isn't, this isn't God's holy community. I mean, we can appreciate, again, good things about whatever people group you find yourself in and I encourage you to, I encourage you to travel and see all the different kinds of people that are out there and see the things that people made in the image of God can do and appreciate um, the, the art and the food and the architecture. All those things are great, but let's not pretend that there's a perfect place out there. It's certainly not Idaho or Texas or Switzerland or, or Japan or wherever you're thinking of retiring. If there's anything to learn, it's that there's no place on this earth that is our home home. We are all sojourners and aliens, as First Peter says. And Gentiles, you are to remember that. The Jewish people, they remember, need to remember that in a different way. Um, you know, if you're talking to Jewish people at the time of, of Paul, they would realize they, um, they traded all that. They traded that community for the pagans, for, for the idols and the godless, for their lusts and their temptations and desires. They traded having that kind of community for their sin. But, and so it's kind of a more damnation for them in a way. But for the Gentiles, for everyone else, um, we need to remember that no matter how good we've ever had a community, and I, I grew up in a pretty decent community, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> there's still racism, there's still injustice, there's still homeless people, there's still... Uh, greedy, um, abusive people. There's still wickedness, no matter where on the face of the planet you go. I mean, some of these places in Europe that people are so, uh, think are such uh, paragons of, of good living and all this, they're like some of the highest areas of human tra- trafficking. So there's no place on this planet where you will find that community. I think in a way, when Paul says, remember that you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, It's not just, it's again about Israel as it should have been, this perfect place. 
Well, we, we, we didn't have that. We don't have that still. So to act like such a place can be found on this side of heaven, remember, that's not true. And in fact, the community that gets closest to being what Israel should have been, short of Israel, is the church. The community that is built upon Christ, when it is allegiance to Jesus that unites when we are agreed to mutually submit to him and to each other, it doesn't matter how many diverse cultures and ethnicities and citizenships and languages are here in this room. We are the people of God. We're home. This is as close to it as we get, as in this context. And do you see how it's irrespective of where we came from, where we grew up? And I want you to bring, you know, very multi-ethnic church here in Southern California is very multi-ethnic. We should bring the best of our culture and our background to here because, again, everyone's made in the image of God. There's cultures that do some things about communicating the image of God better than other cultures. And for that, we should bring that to the table and, and offer that truly as a, as a real melting pot of the virtues and values to exemplify. But those parts of our community, our culture, which are unbiblical and ungodly, those we should be willing to shun. In Asian culture, you can praise for a lot of things, but they also have, um, you know, they worship their dead ancestors. Well, that's a no-no in the Bible. But other things about Asian culture, sure, bring that to the table. I mean, if you have great food, I think great food honors and glorifies God. Yes, bring that to Koinonia, and we'll celebrate the Lord together and enjoy uh, the Lord together. Art and um, and uh, different achievements of your of your culture. Yeah, let's share that. Let's be about that. Um, let's celebrate that. But that which doesn't honor God, we leave that at the door. Hopefully, you leave that out of your life too. Um, but in any case, remember that you were once alienated from the commonwealth of of Israel. You were once aliens and sojourners and you know, you know, if you grew up in some very pagan nation, yeah, that's easy to do. Well, you still need to remember that now. Don't act like you're going to find a heaven on earth here and now. This is as close as it gets um, here in this church. So how much are you um, invested in that community? Okay, <clears throat> third way, third way that we were Gentiles were far from God, and we need to remember that now. Uh, it says, uh, Paul says here that, we are strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, now, the word there for strangers, you could also use the word foreigner. It's very similar to like an alien. There, it's the verb alienated. But here, it's kind of more the noun idea of being someone in a country uh, where you don't have all the rights and privileges of a citizen. Again, the covenants of promise. Covenant is just a Bible word for a promise or a contract even between two parties. The covenants of promise are specifically those covenants related to the uh, Abrahamic covenant, which was an unconditional promise of God that he would bless Abraham and the world. We said that already. Now, this covenant of promise is expanded later on in what's called the Davidic covenant, which was a promise to David that it was going to be one of his descendants. So Abraham was told, one of your seed is going to be kind of the culmination of this covenant and this blessing on the world. And David is told specifically from your lineage and heritage, this 
Messiah, this Mashiach, this Christ would come. He would be the king of the Jews and also king of the world. And through this special descendant then of Abraham and David, God would fulfill that promise of a holy kingdom, a holy nation. But there is one missing element, is a holy people. And so the third covenant of promise, you could say, is the new covenant, which, is, which revealed that through the death of that Mashiach, God would redeem a holy people to dwell in his holy kingdom. Because only holy people can be a part of God's holy kingdom. Well, how do you get there? Well, God says, I can solve that problem. You know, the whole Old Testament, you see the cycle where you keep failing to do what I tell you to do. Here's what's going to happen. By my grace and mercy, I will change your hearts. I'll give you, I'll remove the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Now, as far as the Israelites were concerned, Gentiles were not going to be a part of those promises. God, in a sense, was already being gracious and choosing the Jews to be the recipients of those promises, though they didn't deserve it. Um, and frankly, the Gentiles didn't either. But it, it was uh, not necessarily in their thinking that those promises, which are very Jewish, would be extended to the Gentiles. But God's plan was always to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, how do you remember that you were a stranger <clears throat> to these promises? That's kind of a funny, it's kind of a funny thing to, to, to think about. It's like um, if, you're, if you're neighbors, again, I'm using a lot of kid analogies because we've got a lot of kids in the room, but it, it'd be like if my neighbor's dad promised my neighbor a toy and me being commanded to always think about how someone else was promised a toy, and I wasn't. <laughs> you know, like, Paul, that's kind of a sad thought. But again, we're trying to set up a contrast. It's, think about that, but then imagine that that dad, on the day that he gives a present to you know, your neighbor, also gave you that present. Like, oh, you know, it, it's that kind of, um, of a surprise and delight and joy and happiness. So we are setting up the contrast there. Okay, uh, with, with us being united with Christ to God. But we are to remember, in a sense, that, that that promise wasn't necessarily for us, that that wasn't something we should feel entitled to, is the promises that God made to the Jewish people. Um, now, again, that's still kind of a weird thing to sit there and remember actively. Like, okay, I need to sit and think about, I'm a Gentile, I used to be... Uh, this Gentile that, that didn't deserve anything from God and God made all these promises to Israel. And that can sound like a, a funny like exercise and a funny thing to command. But again, I, I think the way we think about this is what we're tempted, the promises that we're tempted to lay hold of rather than the promises that are here in the Bible. Um, you have to sort of remember the kinds of promises that we cling to before we are Christian or that you see other people that are Gentiles now cling to? What are the promises that Gentiles now cling to that sort of tempt you to want to cling to those same 
promises. I mean, for a long time, there was this hope. You know, the American dream was you work hard, you need decent retirement, white picket fence, dog, two and a half kids. You spend your remaining years going on vacations and visiting the grandkids. And that was kind of like a promise almost or a hope. And if that still entices you, as a Gentile who's now a Christian, if that kind of secular promise or covenant or hope still entices you, I think that's where you remember that you, you know, those kinds of things were our false hopes that the that Gentiles, that's all Gentiles had to hope in for thousands and thousands and thousands of years of, of human history. That's all they had to hope in was those kinds of empty promises and hopes. So why go back to that? That's how you remember. Why go back to that? Now, there's nothing simple about a white picket fence, a dog, retirement, two and a half kids, um, and, and all that. But for one thing, that's not a promise. There's no guarantee that even that if you work hard, any of those can happen. So there's one problem already. Who can guarantee that promise? If God's not the one that guarantees a promise, who's guaranteeing any promise out there in the culture? for what life is about and what you should be doing and and who you are and all those things. Who's saying, yeah, I can make that happen? Only God can make those things happen. Only God's promises matter. Only God's promises are sure. So any promise that you would ever want to cling to that is not rooted and based in the Lord is one that is potentially and probably going to leave you empty-handed. So there's one problem. There's no guarantee of it apart from God. But the more important problem is, what's what's the point? Every culture and society is driving towards something, giving meaning, or at least trying to say there's some meaning to our lives, whether they do that through a local, you know, whatever the religion is of that place or the values that are passed down from generation to generation. But what's the ultimate goal? The covenant promises of God are a promise that every wrong will be righted, that every sin will be judged, that blessing is for those who are humble, that God is gracious to sinners. Those are the covenant promises of God. Those are assured by the creator of the universe himself, himself, and the goal of it is his glory. That's the ultimate point of of everything. But what is every other secular hope from thousands of years ago till now? What is the ultimate goal of any of them? I mean, it's all over the place. But you think if, if they can't assure you that by the things that you're doing and believing, all wrongs will be righted, including the wrongs in our own heart, that suffering and injustice will come to an end that those who are the most hurt and broken will be exalted, I don't know what hope any civilization is, is offering. There's nothing particularly necessary about all the cultures of the world and their offerings of meaning and what life is about doesn't matter, Korean culture, American culture, no society. There's, there's, they are all holding out empty promises apart from the Lord. So at any time that you are tempted by those, that's when you're forgetting 
that you were once strangers to the covenants of promise, but now you are not. I mean, that's the implied thing, but now you are not. You were aliens, but now you are not. You are apart from Christ, but now you're not. So why act like those Gentiles that you used to be and that still exist and put your hope in a promise that will fail, that is false, that is fleeting? We remember being strangers to the covenants of promise by thinking of all those false hopes this life has to offer and realizing just how little guarantees there are that money or fame or power or family will give us fulfillment, eternal fulfillment. God's promise that he has, is that he has given us everything in this life that we need to glorify him, regardless of how much money we have, regardless of what job we do, regardless of the size of our family. We can glorify God because he promised it in his covenants to do that in our lives. And we know that those things are true and sure because, as verse 13 says, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We'll get to having no hope and without God in the world next time. But know that in all of these, there's a huge, but now, in Christ Jesus, using the title and his name, his human name, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That this un uh, this, this impossible chasm that stood between us and God has been bridged by the blood of Jesus Christ. That he has made a way for us to be brought near. It wasn't our plan, it was his plan. It wasn't our blood, it was his blood. It wasn't our work, it was his work. It wasn't any of our doing. But as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, all of him so that no one may boast. By grace, you have been saved. We have been brought near through Jesus Christ and through the gospel. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us this good news, that we who are far off, and every person, we just imagining the world is full of so many lost people, separate from each other, separate from you. You can cross that gap through Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that in you we have a hope. In you, we're not strangers and aliens. We've been brought into a community, into a people of God. And we one day await that full fulfillment when all the people of God can gather together in the holy place. The whole earth will be your footstool and we will be worshiping you for eternity. But until that day, may we not be tempted by the things of this world to go back to those things we turned away from when we became Christians and instead Lord, to put our hope in you every moment, every day. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is so true. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a view of life that is so much bigger and grander. Um, and we pray, Lord, we'd have some pity for those who are lost and without you and far from you, that we would want to proclaim this good news, that they can be brought near by the blood of Christ too. And so, Lord, even as we prepare to remember the blood of Christ spilled for us in the communion uh, convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, draw us near. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.